Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Bejen. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. Studies have recently shown that heterosexual couples where the man in the relationship grew up with a working mother have gotten closest in the 50-50 divide among household chores and childcare. While I am not surprised by this finding, I would like to see a study that looks at men who grew up with a digital pet versus men who didn't. With the <laughs> with the <laughs> Well, give us some funding, Stanford. Don't you want to see this study? It's important as millennials are getting closer to ages in which a lot of them are getting coupled up. Some cases, some have decided to have children. I'd like to see this research. I think there's a lot there. Give us the money, Stanford. With the holiday season approaching us and all of us clamoring for things that spark joy, we've decided to take our periods of regression way back to our childhood and early adolescence. This week, we're talking about the toys that topped our holiday wish list and in some cases scarred us for life. Of the six toys that we are talking about today, Margot, how many did you have? I had two but had um played the third because we kind of separated these into like digital pet doll and like board game kind of vaguely and so i although i never had this particular board game i was familiar with it and boy i mean (laughs) i really do feel extremely triggered by all of this research and like i had to hold back on like a vague capitalist rant about the board game i had to talk about because oh boy it might as well have just been called capitalism for fucking kids it's just kind of crazy the the shit that we let coked out white executives get away with in the late late 80s and early 90s because that's where like it starts and it gets rebooted and it becomes like a craze all over again it is fucking crazy it's almost all of course rich white men and it's incredible Mm -hmm. because it feeds into capitalism and overall women's self-esteem issues like they're oh boy because all of them are designed for women to learn how to spend money or take care of something like it's it is kind of i really felt so like attacked by cabbage patch kids because i was like wow i really feel like the beginning and end is sort of it's a lot to unpack that i've got impacted with uh, our therapist we don't go to therapy together we just have the same therapist um it's going to be a lot to unpack with Mary on Thursday, especially like ahead of my birthday. I'm like, wow, this is really not the time to be looking this deeply into my psyche about toys. Her on the same day. So I will be doing the same in my session. (laughs) 
Sondern <lacht> oh, great. I love this for us. This is so fun. In terms of, you know, toys that we want to get into first, I feel like you probably could go first. Okay. Oh, man. Well, I don't mean to dump out my whole purse here for everybody, but I'm going to be talking about Cabbage Patch Kid dolls. And I, for one, was like Barbie levels of obsessed with Cabbage Patch dolls. For context, I was also very into Anne Gettys later on. And all I'm saying is that... All I'm trying to say is that in the Venn diagram, there is overlap. That's all I'm trying to say. so much overlap. I had so many folders with babies in like flower patches. Like what the actual. I was nine years old. (laughs) Why was it marketed to us? Like, I don't understand. Like I had to very recently. So making Christmas gift lists, I was like, oh, I'm going to get my best friend a puzzle. So I texted her and was like, hey, you know, what's like your interest level in a puzzle? And she's like, well, the last puzzle I... (laughs) The last puzzle I worked on was like an Ann Gettys one with like a baby asleep on a mushroom. And then later on in that day, I had to explain the Ann Gettys fad to Sean, who was like, I don't fucking understand. Like, this was not marketed to me at all. Why would someone take pictures of babies? Like, And I just started laughing uncomfortably because I'm like, yeah, you know, we're like, she put like a baby in a sunflower. I was like, why? Like, was the baby photoshopped? I was like, no, it was like a real baby because it's cute. And like. One of those things, the more you describe it, the more insane you feel and sound. It was that experience. I'm thinking about like the top three types of folders I had as a child. Oh, and no. I mean, Eddie's, so babies and flower patches. Lisa Frank, which is just a rainbow yeah. acid trip of cartoon characters. And then right. there was a big like dolphin phase. Like there was like Kristen Reese Lassen and a couple of other artists who just made these like giant, like weird a little acid trippy as well, but a bit more muted, like landscapes with with dolphins and wolves. And I think that's where the hipster interest in wolf t-shirts started is because of those silly folders. Like that, what 90s execs, man. I mean, I would love to see the team at Staples who was in charge of buying product for school supplies. Like what drugs were they doing and would they like to come on our podcast to talk? I definitely would give a lot to talk to like a regional wholesale manager of Office Depot in 1997. I would oddly would really love that. But that's right. There was like this strange dolphin phase. And I don't know if it was like free willy adjacent or like flipper adjacent or if there was something kind of connecting it there. But there was a bar bat mitzvah that I went to as a kid where we all got like custom. (laughs) This was also a thing um, like airbrushed shirts that had like dolphins on them or wolves and you guys like pick it had like your name on it oh my god and then when it became ironic to wear those again emily i like tore apart my house in high school trying to find this fucking shirt and my mom was like you threw that away like immediately you're like this is the ugliest effing thing and then threw it away i was like no i feel like the bar bat mitzvah circuit and unfortunately i did not attend any as a kid because of Catholic school. But I feel like grain of rice necklaces, caricatures, and then like this dolphin wolf craze were like really big gifts, like take home gifts from a, a bar bat mitzvah in the late 90s, early 2000s. You remember grain of rice necklaces? Maybe if I saw it, that sounds familiar, but it, definitely it's like such a weird thing. What did it look like? So it's a glass Was vial. It really- 
It's oh. a charm on like a string of glass vial oh, yes. that has water and your name, teeny tiny, r- tinyly oh, written God, on yes. a grain of rice. And then it had like puka, maybe the necklace had some beads or like clay beads or puka shells or something like that. Ooh, well, to bring it back to Cabbage Patch dolls. <laughs> <laughs> Tangent. In in my uh, research, some things became clear to me about this doll brand. And maybe it's behind some of the make, maybe it's in part thank you to some of the makers who, you know, have previous experience marketing dolls to little girls. But it really, I was struck by the overwhelming sense that these dolls were made to be this cute thing to train little girls to, sh- to train little girls into thinking that all they're ever going to eventually amount to is becoming a mom. And I can trace the origins of me saying no kids for me, thanks, my stance on having children, kind of to a negative experience with the Cabbage Patch Kid doll. So I, I have this theory, and I think I've told you this before, where I believe that we everyone, every like regular person has one thing in common with celebrities. I happen to have something in common with the fictional Carrie Bradshaw. Make of that whatever you want. Uh, but when I was seven and my parents were going through a divorce, I left my Cabbage Patch doll outside for weeks. And it when I found it, when I remembered to go get it from the house when we were moving, it was like soggy bodied and the face was melting off and it was completely freaked out. And I was like, I can never be a mom. Like, because I had left this doll out that was previously my obsession outside for weeks on end. And well, yeah, it just wasn't the best. And then in looking at these dolls and how they were marketed to kids and it's just kind of a little bit eerie because you didn't just like get a Cabbage Patch Kid doll. You adopted one. So you felt this sort of like responsibility when you had one, like you have to take care of it. Yes. But yeah, like you suddenly this is like what made you like a little adult. And so maybe that's also why I was adverse to partaking in the uh, week in my high school where you could opt into like having to care for like a fake baby. And I was like, no, you, I mean, it wasn't mandatory. It was truly like dependent on like a class that I just did not take. Cause I was like, I don't fucking need this in my life. I had cabbage patch kid dolls. I already know what that feels like. In Catholic school, not only did we not have the budget, so we did flower babies, like literally a pound bag of flour, whatever, five pound bag of flour. But it wasn't, it was mandatory because it was in, and it was in religion class and you got paired off with a God class. And guess who got to take care of the baby most of the time? It was the woman, of course. Like no shit, no surprise. Yeah. So here's some stuff you might not have known. Uh, Just an overview of how these dolls came to be. In 1976, a 21-year-old Xavier Roberts created hand-stitched dolls, which came with their own birth certificates that you could, quote, adopt for $40, which honestly seems kind of steep for 76. In 1978, Roberts took home the first-place ribbon from the Osicola craft show in Florida for his adoptable doll, Dexter. And oh my God, this prototype, Emily, is haunting. (laughs) (laughs) Of course it is. It's a homemade doll. (laughs) But, like, the head is enormous. It can't even sit upright. You can see, obviously, you know, the origins of what will become the doll that we all know and love now. But it was just, it looked, it looked haunted. It was very scary. Later that year, Roberts registers the IP under the name The Little People. But when he sold the company off in 82, they changed it to Cabbage Patch Kids and became one of the most popular dolls of the 80s and 90s. Upwards of 130 million Cabbage Patch dolls have been, quote unquote, born in the past 38 years, averaging one, quote, birth every 6.8 seconds. See, this is like the shit that I'm talking about. Like, 
it's like it's not born. It's like a doll. I feel I feel like this kind of gives the like you know pro lifers a little bit of like this fuel. It just like really makes me uncomfortable, kind of like mm-hmm. reading all of this. Whereas yeah. it was extremely charming when you're a kid because you're just like, oh, babies, like babies are so cute. And like, I love to take care of little babies. I just feel like, you know, the brainwashing begins. <laughs> Seriously. So a little bit of background on Xavier Roberts. As a 21-year-old art student, Roberts utilized the quilting skills he learned from his mother and the historic technique of the needle molding, which is a German technique of fabric sculpting, which explains the eerie first draft of the doll named Dexter. First sold as the little people at arts and crafts fairs, it would later independently retail out of Babyland General Hospital, an old medical clinic that Roberts and his friends turned employees converted into a toy store in Cleveland, Georgia. Now, I didn't know I was as, as obsessed as I was with these dolls. I don't remember there being a like a Babyland General Hospital, like it actually being a place that you can go. Apparently it was open to the public up until like 2016 and they do these Easter events they do like an egg roll in the yard and you can go and like visit the hospital as if it's like really a place where cabbage patch dolls are born and it just like it blows my mind I had no idea that that existed and I'm gonna keep referencing this baby land general hospital so you know please prepare yourselves um so according to legend Roberts came up for his Roberts came up with his idea for little people And he built this entire story slash narrative around it, and it was later reproduced for every Cabbage Patch Kid product from 1983 onward. So the story goes that Xavier Roberts was a 10-year-old boy who discovered the Cabbage Patch Kids by following Bunny Bee, which is like a doll that is like half baby and half bunny, if you look it up in Google Images. And so he follows Bunny Bee behind a waterfall into a magical Cabbage Patch, where he found Cabbage Patch babies being born. To help find them good homes, he built Babyland General in Cleveland, Georgia, where Cabbage Patch kids could come and live and play until they were adopted. It, like, it just, I'm, it already feels bleak. It's going to get bleaker. <laughs> Bunny, bee, <laughs> Bunny bees are bee-like creatures with rabbit ears, and they use their wings to pollinate cabbages with their magic crystals to make Cabbage Patch babies. What? Colonel Casey... Colonel Casey is a large stork who oversees Baby Lane General Hospital. He's the narrator of the Cabbage Patch Kids story. Otis Lee is the leader of the gang of Cabbage Patch Kids that befriended Xavier and brought him into this magical land. The pathology behind it is kind of like what fucks me up the most a little bit. You know, like it's just this. I understand, you know, like writers, we get it, right? Like you have to give this backstory. But this is like a level of like traumatizing and fucked up and like Peter Panny and weird that I don't even know what to do with it. I mean, of course there's a Florida man behind it. Right. I mean, there's <laughs> like, there's no other explanation. Right. Yeah. I think that kind of says everything. So he starts his company called Appalachian Mountain um, Artworks. I, I have it written down later on, but I didn't write this little bridge paragraph. So he starts his company with his friends, turned co-workers. They start making these dolls out of Babyland General. And then in the mid-80s, Colco comes along to acquire them. So we have like the Colco years. And then li- similar to Hello Kitty, honestly, Cabbage like, Patch like Kids kind of like Vision, a- Like the video gaming company? Yes. Ah. Oh, is that, what, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. That's Coleco. Coleco. Well, similar to uh, Hello Kitty in a lot of ways, Hello Kitty is essentially just a licensing brand at this point. Like, they don't really produce a whole lot of original stuff, but they just lease out their IP to various manufacturers or do partnerships with various brands to produce stuff. Like, 
Hello Kitty is not out here trying to make a Hello Kitty rice cooker. And similarly, Xavier Roberts and his company weren't necessarily producing, they weren't mass producing on a scale that start the fad that it would eventually become, right? So Coleco comes along. They're one of these businesses that is mostly comprised of other businesses that they've bought and acquired or hold licensing to existing IP. So before adding toys to their portfolio, they're best known for their tabletop mini arcades of Ms. Pac-Man and Donkey Kong. Mm -hmm. And you guessed it, they retain the licensing rights. So that's why they were able to make all the money off of it. Basically, the forthcoming popularity of home computers temporarily sunk the video game business. And so in 1982, they decided to pivot towards toys. So once Robert's company, Original Appalachian Artwork, excuse me, that's their name, they decided to license a version of the homemade dolls to this brand. They rebranded them Cabbage Patch Kids and began mass production later in 1982. Coleco Cabbage Patch Kids had large, round vinyl heads. Originally, they were a hard plastic and soft fabric bodies. They were produced in a factory in Amsterdam, New York. Coleco also ushered in the Cabbage Patch Kids mania, at least the first wave of it. They were the most must-have toy for Christmas of 1983, something parents would fight each other over. There were Newsweek articles about parents standing outside of Toys R Us for hours on end. It, I mean, the movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jingle All the Way, kind of like comes to mind, like people buying like bootleg Cabbage Patch Kids, that kind of stuff. But like a lot of relics from the 80s, Coleco filed for bankruptcy in 1988, which then led to Cabbage Patch Kids getting snapped up by Hasbro. So in the Hasbro years, prior to acquiring Cabbage Patch Kids, Hasbro's biggest hit was a Gem in the Holograms doll that did really well at first and then completely fell off. And then their second biggest hit was Maxi, which is essentially a ripoff of Barbie. Although Hasbro didn't really have much to do with the brand, they did release several of the most popular lines of Cabbage Patch Kids. So they came up with Birthday Kids, Splash and Tan Kids, and Pretty Crimp and Curl. And they also had one where the doll would play the kazoo, you know, quote unquote, like it had a kazoo. Interesting. Right. It was unique uh, in the design aspect of it. The Hasbro dolls were unique because they had vinyl faces that were covered in fabric. And then they had the uh, face of the doll screen printed on. And so it went back to sort of more of like the soft sculpture doll of like the German technique versus like having like a a plastic head. Um, And it was more kind of like covered. It was like a softer doll. I think they were trying to like market it to like slightly younger kids than they were marketing it to uh, at the time. As Hasbro continued to find success in targeting younger kids, they started to make smaller and smaller dolls. And then in 1994, Mattel acquired the licensing rights from original Appalachian artwork. So these rights kind of trumped the ones that Hasbro had gotten from Coleco. So when Mattel took over in the Mattel years, they didn't just buy the brand. They also bought the production. So they took over completely and they ushered in a completely new wave of popularity. The first Mattel Cabbage Patch dolls hit stores in 1995. And the mark of Mattel Cabbage Patch Kid doll is it's made of vinyl. It's sized 14 inches or smaller. And most variants were individualized to enhance collectability, which is a trademark of Mattel. They love to enhance collectability. Mm-hmm. Memorable Mattel versions of the doll um, are the basic cloth that came with the certificates. So it was sort of like supposed to be like a throwback doll. They also did the Olympic Kids, which coincided with the 1996 Olympics, and the Cabbage Patch Fairies. Additionally, to celebrate the 15th anniversary of Cabbage Patch Kids, Mattel created a line of exclusively female dolls reminiscent of the original line, and they were packaged in a retro box. These were 16 inches, which were the same measurement of the first Coleco Cabbage Patch Kid. So now we're going into Toys R Us and the end of 
the Cabbage Patch fad as we remember it. So by 2001, Toys R Us took over from Mattel, and they left their stamp on their brand by producing 20-inch kids and 18-inch babies, both with cloth bodies and vinyl heads. They were packaged in a cardboard cabbage leaf seat, and the 20-inch dolls debuted in the Times Square flagship store to commemorate the 20th anniversary. The Toys R Us line lasted until Play Along Toys came along, who have made an appearance on this season when I talked about Dream, the girl group band, their dolls, and like the 18 dolls and a bunch of other like inexplicable dolls that were made. Play Along Toys, that's them. And then they also retain the rights to Cabbage Patch Kids, which would explain why in 2002, they have a special Cabbage Patch Kids line that they also have. So in 2003, Play Along launched the Cabbage Patch Kids 25th anniversary collection using some of the original head sculpts from the very first Colico editions. Play Along also partnered with Carvel Ice Cream in a co-branding campaign resulting in Cabbage Patch Kill Cabbage Cabbage Patch Kids <laughs> and a Carvel branded ice cream cone. That sounds which I was just like it's just like the lowest co- like I feel like that's just like the funnel, right? You start out really broad and like it gets more narrow and more narrow until you get like a Carvel cone. Like it just feels like it's, it just makes sense that it trickled into that. One, yes. And two, when you said Cabbage Patch Kill, it just made me think of like, that's some girl's roller derby name out there. Like her name is Cabbage Patch Killer. You know, like that's that's such a good roller derby name. If if we have any listeners who do roller derby, take that as your name. It's my I gift. also I also want to say that that was a probably a popular uh, AIM screen name at some point because oh, it just yeah. has that ring to it. And you got to gotta think that somebody took that. So, to, I mean, for a little to, to round out the history of Cabbage Patch Kids, they are still being made to this day. I believe they are still made by Play Along. I didn't go all the way till the end just because something more interesting came up, which are lawsuits, because I remember that they're there were some pretty prominent lawsuits. Oh, I remember one too. Yep. Xavier Roberts was the creator of Cabbage Patch Kids brand, but many of the brand's defining characteristics, such as the doll's overly round faces, which again, that prototype, that doll's face looks like a fucking moon pie. It's huge. It's just like the biggest, roundest face. Anyway, the fact that they have these really round faces and that they came with adoption certificates were taken from another artist named Martha Nelson Thomas, an American folk artist from Kentucky. Before Roberts became involved in the toy industry, Thomas had created and marketed her own line of dolls called Doll Babies, which she sold at local arts and craft shows. Sound familiar? The two crossed paths at a state fair in 1976, where Roberts began purchasing Thomas's dolls to sell at a profit at his own store in Georgia. Thomas eventually confronted him about his unethical business practices and asked him to cease selling her dolls immediately. Thomas then brought suit against Roberts and eventually settled with him out of court for an undisclosed amount in 1985. Roberts later brought a $30 million lawsuit against Topps, the card company that produced the Garbage Pail Kids for copyright infringement. In 1987, in the midst of the legal proceedings, the makers of the Garbage Pail Kids announced their decision to cease parodying Cabbage Patch Kids. Xavier Roberts was very excited about that. What was your lawsuit that you were thinking of about Cabbage Patch? So there was one Cabbage Patch doll, if I recall correctly, that actually like had a a fact, like a way of chewing things. Like it was a baby doll that could chew. And I think it chewed off some girl's hair and her parents sued. Like this was like the late 90s. I don't remember the details, but I'm pretty sure this lawsuit happened. That did not come up when I was looking up lawsuits. Those were the most two were sort of like 
Did he steal the design for the doll? Did he borrow heavily? And then I did also, I was always very curious about Garbage Pail Kids because I was able to get Garbage Pail Kids new ones, you know, in the 90s. So at some point they kind of like Tops had to make their way around this sort of like legal ruling. I mean, they pulled out. So I don't really know what ended up happening, but. I just Googled the lawsuit, by the way. So Mattel pulled the Cabbage Patch Kids Snack Time Kids doll from the market. This was in 1997. uh, After uh, about 100 reports of children getting hair and fingers caught in the battery-operated mouths, the company offered a $40 refund to doll owners, and one family sued them for $25.5 million. Dang. Okay. Well... That leads perfectly into my last segment about the cultural impact that these dolls had. So this is so insane to me. So in 1985, Christopher Xavier, one of the Cabbage Patch Kids, was the first Cabbage Patch Kid to fly aboard a U.S. space shuttle mission. He now lives in the Smithsonian Museum in Washington. Which I was like, what? I'm sorry. We said, I've seen this Cabbage Patch Kids doll. We sent a Cabbage Patch Kid doll just base like I, I that is just such a wild stunt to me that only like a cooked out 80s executive could come we're just gonna um, put it, put it in, place. in 2020 with beanie babies which i'll talk about <laughs> oh lord in 1992 cabbage patch kids became the first ever mascots of the u.s olympic team for the barcelona games and then were chosen again as the u.s olympic team mascots in 1996 in 2001 cabbage patch kids were elected by popular vote to adorn a stamp representing icons from the 80s to celebrate the century. And then at first I was like, I can't believe there was never like a TV show or a movie, but there were. I just never watched any of these because they were, some of them just passed me by, but some of them were um, before my time. So there were five half-hour animated specials that were produced based on Cabbage Patch Kids. The first was Cabbage Patch Kids' First Christmas, which was an ABC special that aired December 7th, 1984. Then Cabbage Patch Kids' The New Kid, a stop-motion animated special that aired on Fox Kids Network in August of 1995, right? But then the following three animated specials were all stop-motion, which I was like, why would you want that? And they were uh, Cabbage Patch Kids, The Clubhouse, that was in 1996, The Screen Test in 1997, and Vernon's Christmas in 1999. I really do not understand the stop-motion when you could just animate it regularly and it'd be like you said fucking terrifying motion there's something charming about stop motion in the 60s with rudolph and like i enjoy it with like nightmare before christmas but like cabbage patch kids stalls just doesn't just doesn't hit it with me like uh (laughs) i agree wild times um Beanie Babies, I feel like there's a lot of similar energy in some ways with the Beanie Babies and Cabbage Patch Kids. Like what Cabbage Patch was to the 80s is in some ways what Beanie Babies were to the 90s. Beanie Babies, or as I will now refer to them, the original Supreme, which I will get into later, was created by H. Ty Warner in 1993. Hence the Ty heart tags. By the way, it's Ty, not T.Y., Margo, can you guess what Ty Warner is now worth? An upsetting amount of money, like hundreds of millions? $3.5 billion is what you're looking for. <gasps> what? So several in the 90s, when he had all that crazy Beanie Baby money, he invested in several hotel and real estate endeavors. And there was a bit of tax evasion that took place, which I didn't want to get into because 
we need to finish this episode today. Um, but that <laughs> happened, of course. Yeah, I mean, all all rich guys love tax evasion. I feel like I, I don't know. I'll never be rich enough to understand why tax evasion is so thrilling. But yeah, I mean, like, fuck the man. <laughs> Get your money, I guess. Warner was born in Chicago in 1944 and was raised in a suburb called La Prairie. His father was actually a toy salesman for Dokken, which was a famous toy company. After an unsuccessful stint in L.A. trying to become an actor, he came back to Chicago and eventually, like his father, worked as a toy salesman for Dokken or Dakin, not sure you pronounce it, from 1962 to 1980, where he was later fired for trying to sell his own toys to vendors that directly competed with their toys. I want to take a moment to acknowledge that Warner was known for being super eccentric, which made him super successful at the toy company. And when he worked at Dokken, he owned a white Rolls Royce silver shadow convertible and frequently arrived to appointments wearing a fur coat top hat and carrying a cane. He showed up looking like a pimp for toy company meetings. He took a sabbatical after getting fired in Italy, where he was intrigued by these like stuffed cat toys that he saw everywhere that weren't available in the United States. He came back three years later um, in 1983, and then that same year, his dad died. He decided to start his own company, Tie Inc., in 1986 with money he got from mortgaging his home, his life savings, and an inheritance from his dad. In 1993, after trying, you know, a couple of attempts at other toys that were moderately successful, he creates Beanie Babies, small plush animal toys with stuffed that are stuffed with plastic pellets, aka the beans. The idea was that they were small enough that they could fit in a backpack or pocket, and they were cheap enough at like a five to ten dollar price tag so that kids could save up their allowance to buy one. There was a lot of initial criticism around the design because they were deliberately understuffed, which people thought made them look cheap. Warner deliberately did this so that they looked more, quote, real and that they could be easily posed on like a bed or something like that. Additionally, each Beanie Baby came with a heart-shaped swing tag with the tie logo that opened up and a fabric tush tag, as they called it, at the bottom. In 1996, those tags began including those four-line poems that pertain to the Beanie Baby you purchased, along with the date of birth. The idea for this came from Lena Trevetti, Um, And she actually even authored the first 136 Beanie Baby poems. She is also responsible for creating the world's first business-to-consumer website, which was the Thai Incorporated website. This is the most fascinating thing. This woman is responsible for a lot of their success. Uh, She was their 12th employee. um, Of course. And she worked there while she was still a student at DePaul University. She basically got free range to create this com- the company a website in 1995 because she's like, I'm a college student. I know things and people aren't using the internet for re- just research anymore. And she created the site using like a 14.4K modem that her college loaned her. And the website at one point was receiving over 1 billion visits per year. And she's credited for cultivating this demand of Beanie Babies through the internet. So here's where we get into the demand and how brilliant uh, Ty Warner and Lena Trevetti were in creating this marketing around Beanie Babies. Rather than going to Toys R Us and other big box toy retailers, a sentence you would not say in 2020, LOL, he focused on distribution through smaller independent toy stores. He wanted to have multiple small clients instead of a few large ones, which I remember getting my first Beanie Babies at this chain called Zany Brainy. They had a lot less stores than Toys R Us, and they were really kind of focused on educational, interactive toys, basically stuff my parents ate up because they didn't want us like having violent toys or whatever. 
Initially, they started out with nine original Beanie Babies. So there's Legs the Frog, which I had and stupidly took the tag off because I could have sold that on eBay as a kid. Like, yeah, I knew how to do that. Um, Squealer the Pig, Spot the Dog, Flash the Dolphin, Splash the Whale, Chocolate the Moose, Patty the Platypus, Brownie the Bear, later renamed Cubby, and Pinchers the Lobster, which had some tag errors in the original pressing, and it was Punchers. And there's a quick aside there, because Beanie Babies were even bigger collectibles if the toy was from an early run that included a typo or some sort of weird defect that they later corrected, like it had a different color or a weird tail. Anyway, Warner drove up the demand by creating restrictions around item shipments, kind of like the diamond market. He created these artificial short and the toys grew in popularity because Warner introduced the concept of, quote, retiring older Beanie Babies. He would also do random introductions of new Beanie Babies at any given time of year versus like just once the holiday season or once or twice a year. So this leads me to believe that Ty Incorporated might be the first company to have done product drops looking at you, Supreme. Soon, there were various books, magazines, and accessories like carrying cases that you could get all devoted to Beanie Babies. I actually had a friend in my Girl Scouts troop whose mom, who was our troop leader, made Beanie Baby sleeping bags, and I had like six or seven of them. It was brilliant. Like People just were making money left and right over Beanie Baby-related accessories. Additionally, there was a secondary market that developed wherein collectors began reselling toys at hugely inflated prices. And this is where we need to talk about eBay and why they owe their initial success to Thai Incorporated. So eBay, as many of you know, was founded in the mid-90s, 1995 specifically, by Pierre Omidyar. One of its earliest successes and what kept the company going for many years were Beanie Babies. Ty, like most companies, had tried to get an online store and they wanted to help regulate the secondhand market, give people a place to do it from wherever they were in the world. But the site was overwhelmed with unsortable listings and there was a need for a more efficient online trading system and market overall. So Beanie Babies quickly became the dominant product on eBay, accounting for 10% of all listings in 1997 on eBay. So I'm trying to think of like anything else that was big in the late 90s on eBay, but that's really it. Like they were making so much profit out of selling Beanie Babies on eBay. At the peak of the Beanie Baby craze, so around like late 90s, Thai Incorporated is believed to have earned over $700 million in profits in any given year. Ty Warner was keenly aware that the Beanie Baby bubble could burst, which it did. Um, So he was really smart about his uh, plan with that. And so he required retailers who sold the Beanie Babies to also stock uh, additional Ty Incorporated product lines. So they had dolls, they had teddy bears that weren't Beanie Babies. They kind so he made sure to keep having other product lines that were less successful, but ultimately would help in the future when the Beanie Baby bubble would burst. Teeny Beanies we have to talk about as well. Um, So, of course, as many of you know, with the Beanie Baby craze, it got so insane that McDonald's even got on, uh, jumped on the bandwagon and introduced Teeny Beanies, whose initial run was from 1997 to 2000. Personally, I was at the beach one summer with my sister and my dad's cousin, who was like an aunt to us, and we drove around several McDonald's trying to collect several of these. During the height of their popularity, which is around 1998, Teeny Beanies were the cause of many fights at various McDonald's locations, resulting in police calls. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Mental charges and injuries. This includes a Miami area McDonald's employee who was charged with the theft of toys, which leads me to believe that there should be a mini sequel to McMillions because Florida, of course, um, that all goes only into the story around someone, this employee who made money off of the reselling of teeny beanies. I think there's potential here. HBO, call me. As of today, surviving Beanie Babies are worth about 50 cents a piece. And I read this in a interview with Zach Bissonette, who authored a book called The Great Beanie Baby Bubble, Mass Delusion, and the Dark Side of Cute, which I really want to read and has quickly made itself on top of my must-read list after this research. At their peak, Beanie Babies. I would say the most notable one was Princess, the purple teddy bear with a white rose released to memorialize Princess Diana's death, which in hindsight, I mean, there's a charity component to it, which I can get into in a second. But like, it is kind of weird that we had like a grief related Beanie Baby in these dark times. Like, I am thinking about it now and like everything out, you know, I just watched Diana in her own words on Netflix and the crown and all that. And I'm just like this, I, I still can't believe this happened. <laughs> Did you have Princess? No, I think it sold out really quickly. I didn't have a Diana. I didn't really get as into the Beanie Baby craze that much. Um, I I had a friend from summer camp who was legit obsessed, and she had a whole shelf of a bunch of Beanie Babies. And so that was kind of like enough for me was being able to play with hers at some point. But I had maybe like a few, but they weren't worth anything. I definitely remember the mini Beanie Babies being like a huge deal at McDonald's. I don't believe I was privy to a fight, but I definitely remember them happening. And I might have had one or two, but like, I mean, I think the the scarcity of, of like the economic side of Beanie Babies kind of feels a little bit more transparent now than it did at the time when you were like, "Gotta get them all," you know. But I mean, I it's really <laughs> as obsessed. With, yeah, I didn't feel as obsessed with them as other people did. I thought they were fine. We, I was like, I was into them. My sister and I together kind of collected them. We weren't insane. Like our parents weren't going to be buying us like hundred dollar ones or anything like that. Um, but it was a weird, I mean, it was, it was a quick, you know, three, two to three year period. And then over time it kind of just, it dropped. And then 
the Thai company is still around today and they, you know, do a lot of licensing. They still carry some fairly successful lines and they've had some popular toys, but obviously nothing as insane as the craze that was Beanie Babies. For a nice NASA connection (laughs) to your cabbage patch earlier, um, Tremor, the Beanie Baby, was the first Beanie Baby that was sent into outer space on May 30th, 2020, as part of the Crew Dragon Demo 2 mission. Uh, And that's really all I have to say about Beanie Babies. It was a wild ride, but I just am still remembering, you know, eBay selling people selling them for, you know, $1,500. At one point, I think one was were being even sold for like $10,000. It was wild times. It's such a racket. It feels, you know, as steady of an income stream is like trying to bet on who's going to win the Super Bowl. But my main question is, why the fuck are we launching toys into space? Like, what is that about? I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, I'm sure there's a head of partnerships at Thai Company and at uh, at Hasbro who, like, has a contact at NASA and is just like, let's launch a toy into space. <laughs> Hey, what are you doing this weekend? You want to put a toy in space? Sounds good. Well, something refreshing about this next toy is it's never gone to space. Thank fucking God. Oh, Tamagotchis. The other thing I love the most about just generally toys from the 90s are the mass amount of obscure batteries that they all required and the various beeps and boops that drove our poor overworked parents to their brim. It's like you start with that wheel that makes all the animal sounds for you when you're a baby. And then by the time you're in elementary and middle school, you've graduated to this shit, a Tamagotchi. Now, my school, like I said, you had to opt into the whole carrying a baby around with you all day. But one thing uh, that was universal in my school was everyone having at least one Tamagotchi. I I remember there was there were at least a handful of girls that I knew that had like a key ring of them because, as I was saying, the batteries would randomly die on you and you had to like unscrew the back. And of course, they were like a little flat like watch batteries or whatever you had to replace them with. And so those people like just had an array that would go off and have like little beeps and boops going on at different times. And then some of them would just be straight up dead, whether the pet was dead or like the, you know, computer itself was dead. But what was your experience with a Tamagotchi? Did you have multiples? Did you have any? I had one. I had an angel Tamagotchi because they had a bunch of different lines. Um, And then I had before yeah. that, I had, I had a Gigapet, which is my digital pet that we'll, I'll be talking about. But yeah, I had a I had a Gigapet and I had a Tamagotchi Angel, um, both of which I think at one point or another were confiscated by a teacher. <laughs> that makes sense. I didn't care enough to bring them to school. I was like, it's just gonna, if it's going to die, it's going to die, I guess. You know, I'll see it later. And it's not worth getting it taken away. You see enough people get in trouble and you're like, you know what? Fuck it. It's fine. It can die. It'll just start over again. So Tamagotchis were a handheld digital pet, and they were created in Japan by Akiro Yokoi of Wiz and Aki Maitai uh, of Bandai. And it was released by Bandai in November of 1996 in Japan and then in May of the following year for the rest of the world. It became one of the biggest toy fads of the late 90s and early 2000s. And as of 2010, over 76 million Tamagotchis had been sold worldwide. Tamagotchis are a small egg-shaped computer with a three-button interface. The name Tamagotchi comes from combining two Japanese words, tamago, which means egg, and yuchi, (laughs) which I'm just (laughs) embarrassing myself, which means watch. When Tamagotchis launched in Japan, it was exclusively marketed to teen girls. So the game and characters itself, Tamagotchis 
in general, are a small alien species that were deposited as an egg on Earth to see what life was like. And it is up to the player to raise the egg into an adult creature. Some of this origin story kind of struck me as like Lilo and Stitch adjacent with like some cute little alien creature that charms you into taking care of it. And it like is always hungry and stuff. And you got to clean up its poop. Uh, the creature the creature goes through several stages of growth and will develop differently depending on the care of the player. The better the care, the better the adult creature turns into, the smarter, happier it is, and requires less and less attention. The fact that gameplay varies wildly between players and different models of Tamagotchis, like you were saying, your Tamagotchi Angel or a Tamagotchi, which requires less hands-on um, from the player's end than other models is kind of what fueled the fad. Like I said, I remember people in elementary and middle school who had like a whole key ring of them and they were different kinds of Tamagotchis at various stages of its life. And maybe that's what kind of kept you engaged. But just one Tamagotchi was good for me. So the game itself works like this. After you activate your toy, a little egg appears and it wiggles around until it finally hatches into a pet. In later versions, you can input the player's name and its birthday. And you can also start the clock and have like, a birthday for you put in your birthday, but you can also set the clock to a birthday for the Tamagotchi itself. And then the player can name the pet. The player then takes care of the pet as much or as little as they choose. And the outcome depends on the player's actions. The first Tamagotchis could only be paused by going to set the clock, effectively stopping the passage of time in the game. But in later models, the pause function was included. So pets have four meters, hunger meter, happy meter, bracelet meter, and discipline meter to determine how healthy and well-behaved the pet is. There is also an age and weight, which is so rude, check function for the current (laughs) age and weight of the pet. So filling up the hunger meter can be achieved by feeding the pet a meal, whether it's bread or little hamburgers or a snack, which is like candy or cake, which I was like, this is so unhealthy. All of the options for these Tamagotchis are just like fucking (laughs) trash food. It's like you're feeding like your little pet raccoon or something. You can also fill up the happy meter by playing mini games with the pet or feeding it a snack, which is so funny that like the snack is also the happiness meter. There are no limits to this, but there are limits to how many meals you can feed the Tamagotchi. The discipline meter can be filled by pressing the scold option when a pet calls for attention but refuses to play or be fed a meal. The pet will leave droppings around the screen from time to time that can later make them sick if it's not cleaned up. And when the pet goes to the bathroom, they'll make a face at you and the little stink lines will appear on their poop, which I definitely remember that. They had, like little animated flies that would come in and stuff. Oh, totally. Um, <laughs> if the player activates the toilet icon during this animation, but before the pet has gone to the bathroom, the pet will use the toilet instead. When done repeatedly, the pet can become potty trained, which... I vaguely recall, but was never successful at. The pet can become sick for any number of reasons, such as overfeeding of snacks or failing to clean up. When the pet gets sick, a skull icon appears next to the pet and will sit at the bottom of the screen with an unhappy expression until you either make it better or it dies. So the pet can die if it's sick and it's left unchecked. You can be cured by pressing the medicine option. However, it may need to be pressed more than once. Usually a pet will not accept a meal or play around while it's sick. Pets can die due to poor care, old age, sickness, and in a few versions, predators, which I vaguely recall that. Like something would come in and then eat your little uh, Tamagotchi pet. And it was always very traumatizing because you couldn't really do anything about it, obviously. That's true. Oh, this I thought was very funny and made me think about the most recent season of The Mandalorian. But poor care of a pet can, can lead to the pet dying. It can also die of old age. If the pet is old when it dies but doesn't produce any offspring, the family line has ended. I was like, oh, my God. 
between all this talk of like eggs and family lineage, I'm feeling very much like Baby Yoda eating those little frog eggs. It's just like that's what it reminded me of. The Japanese Tamagotchi toys usually featured a ghost or a headstone when the pet dies, but the English language versions changed it to show an angel at death or simply it floating into its UFO to return to its home planet. Pressing the right button shows the age the pet dies. After the pet dies, the player can restart the game. The pet goes through several distinct stages of life, and it lasts a set amount of time. And when it reaches the new stage, the toy plays a little jingle, and the pet appearances changes. The pet's life cycle are baby, child, teenager, and adult. Later, Tamagotchi models added a senior model. Usually, the pet's age will increase once it is awakened from its sleep time. Now, Tamagotchis didn't really have like a huge cultural impact beyond the sort of fad of it all. And because I don't believe that they had too much of like a competitive nature. They never really sold out. They were a little bit expensive for this tiny little egg game that was infuriating to kids and parents alike. But I was surprised that there weren't any movies, except alas, there were in December of 2007, which feels late to the fad. They released Tamagotchi, the movie in Japan. It focuses on Mimichi along with her friends. Oh, God. (laughs) Kuchipachi. They're introduced to Tanpopo a human girl who accidentally transports the Tamagotchi planet and eventually someone has, well, I don't even know. Someone has like a younger sister who was born during the film's events. Anyway, the film opened in Japan at number three, eventually made it direct to DVD in the U.S. in June of 2009, which feels like way past the fad point here. Anyway, there have been a sequel and a short that were released direct to DVD in Japan. And You had texted me about how people used to have Tamagotchi funerals. There's some other like dark shit to Tamagotchi, but I felt like the pet dying and it flying off on a UFO or having a ghost or a headstone was bleak, uh, as as bleak as I wanted to get today. So that is Tamagotchi. I there's so many parallels in many ways. I feel like with Gigapet, it's basically what you get when a toy craze starts in Japan and America's like, yeah, we can do that. Um, Tiger Electronics first released Gigapets in 1997 in response to Bandai's uh, release of Tamagotchi and the overall virtual digital pet craze. The man responsible for Gigapet was Roger Schiffman, who actually passed away this September, unfortunately. He was the co-founder of Tiger Electronics and was behind the company's late 90s juggernaut, Furby, which we will not be talking about today because that shit is bleak and very long, and that deserves its own mini-episode one of these days. So Gigapets were actually first developed in 1995 as V-Pets by a Rico LLC, a toy firm in Chicago, who then licensed the concept to Tiger Electronics. Obviously, Tiger, many of you were born in the 80s, 70s. You'll be very familiar with the name because they were huge in the 90s. They're behind the licensed handheld games for many movies and TV shows, Talk Boy and Talk Girl, Gigapets, and Furby. The company was founded in 1978 by Roger Schiffman and Randy Rissman and is best known for being the leader in toys that had LCD screens. Tiger made a shit ton of money thanks to licensing big name movies such as RoboCop, Terminator, Spider-Man, and even Disney. I actually had a Little Mermaid Tiger handheld game in the early 90s. They had an easy ability to get licensing rights because they were a much smaller company. um, And so they would get it in time to produce a toy so that they could still cash in on the craze for said movie or said TV show. The games were usually around 20 bucks. Um, and then they were pretty simplistic, but great for a younger audience that wasn't, you know, necessary, necessarily worried about getting a game console and didn't want to spend that kind of money. So their marketing game was so good that it, when it came to working with big names, 
they came up with the Talkboy. So the Talkboy cassette recorder, just a quick aside here, was produced as a tie-in for Home Alone 2 based on specifications that John Hughes provided and the movie studio. So they like it was the other way around. Rather than having the movie to promote a toy, the movie itself was like the toy itself was created in for the movie itself. It was very, very crazy when I read about that. Um, so eventually they uh, acquired the toys division of T- Texas Instruments in 1995, a.k.a. that company that forced you to spend almost $100 on a calculator that could graph in high school. Um, and then in February of 1998, they are acquired by Hasbro for $335 million, which Hasbro is going to come up a lot throughout our podcast just because they own basically every toy company you remember from your childhood. So back to Gigapets. The biggest difference between a Gigapet and the Tamagotchi was that they were usually established animals or creatures like dogs, cats, dinosaurs, etc. There were some aliens, but they were, you know, they were established. It wasn't something that they created brand new for this toy. And they did a lot of licensing with major brands. So the other big difference here was they were usually born um, in very distinct ways. So it was like if you had the cat, it was delivered by a stork. If you had a baby T-Rex, it hatched from an egg. Um, And then you took care of it very similarly to Tamagotchi's. Uh, You would make selections to feed it, bathe it, have it exercise, sleep, discipline it, etc. Gigapets entered the market a year later in May of 1997 after Tamagotchi Marketed as a more readily available and slightly cheaper option, Gigapets retailed around $10, um, and because they were more U.S.-based, there was this like, oh, we're more available here. Um, They started by releasing three pets at a time, beginning with the Digital Doggy, which was a purple Gigapet, which I had, Compy Kitty, and Microchimp. The next round of pets, released later that summer, were marketed more towards boys. So there's the baby T-Rex, which Tiger, in the spirit of licensing, had tied to the Lost World Jurassic Park sequel, Virtual Alien, and the Bit Critter. And I have to bring this up because of the wild Mario Lopez Lifetime movie. KFC got into the craze, and in November of 1997, they offered four new Gigapets at their locations, Digipooch, Micropup, Cyber Kitty, and Bitty Kitty. These were identical to the Digital dog, Doggy and CompuKitty, but they just had new shell colors. So I'd like to think that the VP that came up for this partnership, you know, when they were just starting out in the 90s, is now responsible for the Lifetime movie starring Mario Lopez as a sexy Colonel Sanders. More licensed Gigapets would eventually come out with two new Disney-themed pets, 101 Dalmatians and The Little Mermaid around the holiday season. By the end of 1997, the digital pet market was pretty saturated. In addition to Tiger and Bondi, Playmates Toys, who made the very popular Nano Pets, Fujitsu, PF Magic, Sega, Viacom New Media, Casio, and Technosphere, each had a digital pet on the market. And by the end of 1998, the virtual pet craze had mostly died down and sales of virtual pets plunged nearly 80% in the United States. As Tiger Electronics was being acquired by Hasbro that year, Roger Schiffman had been coming up with what was going to be the 1998 holiday season's follow-up to Gigapets. He was in the early stages of developing Furby, and as part of the acquisition, he got it basically in writing that the agreement would include the continuation of Furby's development, which was good on him because he made a shit ton of money off of it. And that's really what I have about Gigapets. Very interesting. That he went from Gigapets to Furbies. Yes. Well, you know where you can get 
a gigapet and a Furby at the mall. <laughs> <laughs> nice tie-in. Thank you. Yes. Oh, boy. I'm going to talk about Mall Madness, a little board game where you the goal of the game is to buy as much shit as possible. <laughs> It comes from Milton Bradley, originally released in 1988, but was given a popular update in 1996, which is sort of the one that I'm going to be referencing. They later had versions that came out in 2004 and in 2020, which like, what? Who the fuck goes to the mall now in this economy? You're giving me a 2020 mall madness? Go fuck yourselves, Milton Bradley. You are drunk on power. It's an abandoned mall and you have to just like break as many windows as possible. Yeah, unless it's like a zombie-based mall game, I don't want to fucking hear it. But this game was targeted for girls ages 9 and up, so really the game should have been called Capitalism for Kids. The commercial you'll probably remember most from this game is the one where four girls are shopping at the mall while also simultaneously playing this game at home. They all have credit cards, even though they're 11-year-olds in bucket hats. At the end of the game, one of the girls, the you know the Queen Bee-ish one who starts the whole commercial by saying, got your credit cards, girls? I'm like, you're 11. What the fuck are you saying right now? Anyway, she like (laughs) she whips all of her fucking friends asses and is just like, I win because she moves her pawn all the way into the parking lot. And that's when I started laughing. So like, yeah, I forgot the goal is to like you have to get to the parking lot. (laughs) (laughs) Also, the tagline for the game is mob madness. It's the mall with it all. (laughs) Which Go fuck yourself. So the game itself in the box, you get. The game board, an electronic computer, the instruction manual, four rubber pads to prevent the pieces from slipping, six wall pieces, four cardboard shopping lists, two sales, one clearance sign, eight plastic pawns of various colors, and some of them were gender uh, assigned as well, 40 plastic pegs to mark your what you get on your shopping list, paper money that resembled U.S. currency, except the denominations uh, for the color-coded game obviously didn't look like a real bill, but it's supposed to, it's sort of like Monopoly money doesn't, isn't really like U.S. currency, but it's supposed to, you know what they're doing. They're trying to get you to be a mall person. They want you to spend your money. They don't want you to think about it. It's all about consumerism. You know, it's fine. Anyway, you also get four cardboard credit cards And that is the setup for the game. The object of the game is to be the first player to purchase six items from your shopping list and get back to the parking lot before everybody else. For a more challenging gameplay, the goal could be increased to 10 items. And this is for the editions that ran between 1989 and 1996. The board is three-dimensional to represent the two stories in the mall. They have a bank in there and a speaker, which is like where the computer kind of comes in and like makes these announcements throughout. Some of the stores and locations are on the second floor, but can only be reached by the stairs or elevator. The computer is, again, like I said, extremely 2001 HAL as it dictates the gameplay and requires four AA batteries. <laughs> again, my, <laughs> my, my 90s battery theory is gaining strength. Okay, so there are two slots on the computer for the uh, credit cards to go into and one slot to buy items. So you would like give it money like it's an ATM. The game has two components of currency, which is the paper cash, the paper cash and the credit cards. And then when used, you have to use them together to accomplish the game's objective. And then the names of the credit cards are fast cash, quick draw, mega money and easy money, which I was like, you guys are really kind of like setting us all up to do those like same day cash advance places. Like that's what this is setting up. It feels like <laughs> in my bones. Game built bad credit. Oh, my God. Teaching you to just say, fuck it and take out that credit card. Okay, so the game is designed for two to four players max. Each player gets one hundred fifty dollars. 
Sometimes in some other versions, you could get up to 200. You get them from one player who is designated to be the banker. The banker dispenses the cash in the following manner. You know, uh, everybody gets like a couple 50s, a couple 20s, a couple 10s, a couple 5s. And the first player hits the computer's game button, which then tells the player to move to a random number of spaces. Then they arrive at a store. Each player can make a purchase with their cardboard credit card. And the computer tracks all of the gameplay. After the player purchases items with the credit card, he or she will pay the banker with the appropriate amount of cash or use their card. And the electronic voice also announces clearances at stores and sales at the others. Players can use these sales to their advantages as it takes up an entire turn to get to an ATM. So some of these like some of these sales and clearances might be like cash only. So you have to like you have to go down to like the bottom basement of the mall and like get to the ATM and like get cash from the banker or whatever. Anyway, at random intervals, a player may be given the chance to solely attend a clearance or a sale that nobody else can. And other times, a player may have to pay an additional fee for an item. So it just seems like this you're at the mercy of this fucking computer. Sometimes the game will refuse a sale or refuse to dispense more cash. Occasionally, the game will randomly instruct players to move the ATM or the arcade or the restrooms. So you have to move your player to various places on the board to sort of like elongate the game. What I think is hilarious are the stores in Mall Madness. So they had 18 stores that you could visit. We have I Am Coffin Drugstore, Suits Me Fine Men's Shop, Two Left Feet, Short Circuit Electronics, Yuppie Puppy Pets, Scratchy's Records, Novel Idea Books, Frump's Fashion Boutique, The Right Stuff Card Shop, right with a W, Fork It Over Kitchen Store, Hocus Focus Cameras, but like Hocus is spelled with a K, so H-O-K-U-S, Sweaty's Sports, Made in the shade sunglasses, chips, computers, rubies, jewelries, dingling phones, which like dingling, you're going to give like preteen <laughs> dingling, empty wallets, department store and Tinker's toys. Players could also visit four other areas, Coneheads ice cream, the restrooms, which could move, Vidiot's arcade, which I find interesting because there's like a Vidiot's video store or there used to be one in Venice famously, and Aunt Chovy's Pizza. And that was Mall of Madness. I mean, I don't know if you necessarily could. I don't think, I mean, unless you put pizza on your list, you didn't really need to go there. But I just found the amount of stores and the ridiculousness therein to be pretty comical. I I feel like it was much more creative than Dream Phone. Like, you know, really? they're both, so both were designed by Michael Gray. And he actually designed 36 games for Milton Bradley in like a three-year period from 1978 to 1981. But I, I think that Mall Madness just has a little more, I mean, it's it's more consumerism and all that, but I think that there's just a little more thought to it. Uh, Dream Phone is basically Clue with guys. Like, that's that's the premise. That's really <laughs> it. Okay. A fucking course, a heteronormative board game that instills values on girls winning a game based on finding out which guy likes them through process of elimination was designed by a man. It was designed with a premise similar to Clue, an elimination-style game based on the knowledge that a guy liked you, and you didn't know which guy liked you, but you did know some facts about him, and it's kind of a race to get to it. So there are 24 guys on the board, each of which have a card with their 555 phone numbers on them, and you would figure out which guy liked you by calling the number of the guy you landed on and getting a fact. So you know a couple facts about the guy who likes you, um, and you're using kind of this process of process of elimination based on what the guy tells you on the phone. 
Once you're able to deduce who the guy is based on your knowledge, you can then make a guess by calling on the on the phone. And if you guess correctly, you'll get a guy's voice on the phone that says, you're right, I like you. And that's how you win. And it's just basically the same premise. Instead of accusing someone, Miss Scarlet, with a lead pipe in the study, you're trying to see if Josh likes you because he likes skateboards but hates cheese pizza. That's it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's kind of pretty true to life, right? When someone would be like, I know someone who likes you. And they wouldn't tell you who, but they'd give you com- they'd give you a couple of clues and be like, exactly. is it Tyler? Is it Jason? So, yeah. But the fact that it's turned into a board game that's also competitive is – I just – yeah. Any board game that's competitive about men, I'm like, at least the mall, you get yes. stuff, you know? You get stuff. <laughs> So with Gray, he actually, I mean, he was so successful with these board games. He eventually became the senior director of global concept acquisition for Hasbro's games division. And uh, Dream Phone was created much like many toys that are on the market because profits. Like more specifically, they had a necessity to have something on the market targeted towards tween girls. And they wanted something that was centered around a phone. And according to this interview with him on Hello Giggles, he said, Quote, it got down to the wire. It was a Thursday and we had to present something on Tuesday and they didn't have anything. So I called them in my office and I said, all right, listen, this is what we're going to do. So they used this concept of Clue and other elimination games to frame it. And as for it being designed by men, in an interview in Great Big Story, he was you know, asked about this and he said it was a bunch of guys that did it, but that's okay. Um And I should note, he seems like a perfectly nice man. Like he doesn't seem like one of these assholes I would have said like of course he designed this game he seems very sweet but I'm just angry in general that this was designed by men but um in terms of behind the scenes the important thing here is like how did they pick the guys used on these cards apparently in many of these cases and the same should uh, should be noted for other like dating games like this like mystery date that's how we got a young Chris Evans in like the 90s adaptation of that game uh they would go get these cards, the guys for the cards are kind of, they go to a photo house. So they go somewhere where like people did headshots and that kind of thing. And they didn't know who any of these guys were. Like they weren't really auditions. They just kind of picked them based on who they liked. And the main thing that was the focal design point and really at the center of this like hexagon game board was a pink electronic telephone, which Gray said was an elegant and beautiful thing. And at this time, and which was still a fairly novel concept, like Mall Madness and Dream Phone, both are really tied to an electronic component to it. And the design team called this phone the pink slipper because if you flipped it horizontally, it kind of looked like Cinderella's glass slipper. Hmm. So in this Hello Giggles interview, they asked Michael Gray, you know, if he thinks this game could exist in 2020s, like, you know, obviously a lot of modifications would have to be made because guess what? Girls don't always like boys. Sometimes they like other girls and like, you know, gender stereotypes and all that. But it would be interesting, I think, to see, you know, what does Dream Phone look like in 2020? Certainly not the one that was produced in the early 90s. Anything, any parting thoughts any any toys that you think should make a comeback in a hopefully reimagined way maybe dream phone i feel like maybe that's the best so far i think it could be really fun i mean if they just you know it's it could be less heteronormative there's like a fun component to it maybe not a phone but like something i don't know like a text messaging component to it i don't know you could make it yeah you could make it a little like gossip girl-esque right like it, yes. could, it doesn't even need to be like romance focus it could just be like trying to figure out what this 
blind item for lack of a better term is about but i mean they never oh my god like a doom wah yes like how to decode gossip like uh, i think that amazing board game marco we are going to design this board game But I, you know, they never stop making Cabbage Patch dolls. They still make Tamagotchis. You you can get Tamagotchi like as an app. I almost downloaded it. And then I was like, what am I doing? I don't want to take care of another thing. I have a dog and a husband. Like I take care of enough and myself. It's, I don't need a fake pet. But I don't, and Mall Madness having a 2020 version is like baffling to me. That's the last thing we need. But maybe like Gossip well, Phone would be there- really fun. Gossip phone sounds great. The premise of Mall Madness getting to the parking lot, if there's a zombie added angle to it, is fantastic. Like you're right. trying I mean, to that, get to the car. Right. And it also, I feel like, is more like true to life, right? Like, uh, I, like take the Dawn of the Dead movie that they did like in 2004. Like if it's based on that, then sure. But who is going to a mall right now? You know, no unless it's like, looting the mall you know during during a protest like what do you take and then the first one out to the car wins like that to me makes more sense but as it stands not as much no I'm not gonna be like talking about trying to run through like the Glendale Galleria plus it wouldn't even be inside like any whatever I have a lot of problems with that but <laughs> popular malls are like the outdoor based ones now like the Grove and shit like that's a popular mall that's a not popular this, like, mall yeah, I guess. Yeah. The one in San Francisco, it's like people are forced to go to Westfield. They don't choose to go to Westfield. No, no one chooses to go there. <laughs> Those are my uh, parting thoughts. <laughs> but, you know, so no one chooses to go to that mall, but you do choose to listen to us. And for that, we appreciate you this holiday so season. So we, we know it's been a tough few months and we hope maybe just maybe our ramblings on digital pets or how some one hit wonders deserved a better chance made you smile for just a few minutes. While this may be our season finale, we will be coming your way with some fun mini episodes over the next few months. So check those out. And the best way to do that is to find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, Pocket Casts, Google Podcasts, etc., etc., whichever podcast medium you choose, um, and subscribe to us and listen to us there. And if you like us a ton, you know, why don't you sing our praises and leave us a nice review? Um, you can subscribe so you can stay up to date on our latest episodes. You can leave us a rating and comment and give us some suggestions on upcoming episode ideas. We always love to hear them. Sometimes we go on tangents in our notes, as you've seen today, and we just don't have enough time to get into everything we want to talk about. If you want to check out some of our more interesting ramblings, we have a Medium page at Old Millennials Pod. I am due to make a, a post this upcoming month about uh, famous holiday albums of the 90s and 2000s that shaped us. So stay tuned. Um, additionally, if you want to check us out on social media, we're on Instagram and Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. And you can also find us individually on Twitter. I am at Emily A. Beijin. And I am at Marg She Wrote. And until oh, next time we what before we say bye, this is also our 50th episode. So ah, I, yay. congratulations to us and thank you for however many episodes you've listened to in the last year and a half. But yeah, 50th episode on the fourth season finale. Just needed to point it out because I know that we're not the most amazing at celebrating anniversaries. So <laughs> 
five zero golden episodes, four seasons, three French hens, two turtle doves, and a partridge in a pear tree. God, I need to get some rest. Um, but until Perfect. next time, we say happy holidays. Stay safe. Stay home, please. And bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.